Hi, welcome to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast, a weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. I am Lee Campbell-Taylor, the interim pastor here, and Covenant Presbyterian Church is an open, affirming congregation, and we're so glad you found us. Our primary mission is to equip God's people to serve Christ in the world. In our weekly messages, we hope that you'll find inspiration, encouragement, and even challenge for your faith journey. Please listen with us now. Earlier in today's worship service, we joyfully welcomed two new members. Caitlin and Zeph have officially begun their journey with Covenant Presbyterian Church, and as they join this community's shared life of faith and discipleship. And I wonder if they asked you to articulate what is of primary importance in this countercultural faith that we profess here at Covenant, what would you say? Furthermore, in a few minutes, we will celebrate communion. And again, I wonder if you were asked, what is the first thing to know about this mystery? What would you say? It's not easy to excavate our life of faith, seeking to identify the beneath it all thing, the but first thing. It's not easy because what lies at the heart of the Christian faith is learned through challenges, even struggles. Thanks to Lin-Manuel Miranda, more people now know more about the struggles of Alexander Hamilton than ever before. Brilliant and penniless, Hamilton arrived in America in 1776 and quickly joined the revolution. He became George Washington's right-hand man and later a commander at the Battle of Yorktown. Along the way, Alexander fell in love with and married Eliza Schuyler, and they started a family. After the war, Hamilton became our first Secretary of the Treasury. And he had an affair, for which he was blackmailed. Hamilton paid them off and moved on. But years later, his political foes learned of those blackmail payments and completely misinterpreting the discovery, they accused Hamilton of having used his cabinet post for financial misdeeds. So in a gasp-inducing move, Hamilton responded by publishing a statement that cleared his professional reputation by publicly exposing his extramarital affair. No documents survive to tell us of Eliza's reaction, but their beloved son, Philip, 19 years old, hears someone disparage his father's tattered honor, challenges that man to a duel, and is killed. In the Broadway musical, the song that occurs at this point begins, there are moments that the words don't reach. There's a suffering too terrible to name. The chorus describes the struggles to keep going, and we watch Alexander's pained perseverance to reconnect with his wife. The final verse begins, there are moments that the words don't reach. There is a grace too powerful to name. Eliza takes his hand, and the chorus repeats a line about forgiveness. The Hamiltons proceed to rebuild their life, but first, 
They traffic in grace and forgiveness and love. Today's two scripture passages also tell of the love that makes all else that's good possible. There's the story that Robert read from the book of Acts. Saul, not yet renamed Paul, has just overseen the stoning of Stephen, who was one of the first Christian martyrs. And now Saul is bearing down on Damascus, pursuing more followers of Jesus' way. Suddenly a voice confronts Saul, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, and Saul is blinded. For three days, and yes, here in Eastertide, that should ring a bell, for three days, Saul has no food or water or light until God sends Ananias to heal and baptize him. That deadly persecutor of Christ followers is forgiven by Christ in a life-transforming way. Jesus describes Saul as an instrument whom I have chosen. And Saul responds by proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. As we know, Jesus has a major mission for Saul, soon to be Paul, but first they must traffic in grace, forgiveness, and love. Even plainer, perhaps, for our question of what is the but first thing that undergirds our life of faith, there is today's gospel story. Peter, on the run from shame and trauma, goes fishing with the others. They catch nothing until the risen Jesus appears and leads them to abundance. Wide-eyed, the fishermen come ashore, and there on the beach is a charcoal fire. Anybody know where is the only other place in the entire Bible where you would find that term? It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Simon Peter is warming himself at a charcoal fire when he denies knowing Jesus. Now on the beach fire, there's fish and bread. And although the meal is already cooking, and we know Jesus can make fish and bread go a long way, Jesus still asks the disciples to contribute some of their catch. That catches my attention. Bring some of the fish you've caught. Participate in what I'm doing here. Peter obliges, and Jesus invites them all to breakfast. And y'all, none of the disciples has said a word to Jesus. It's like one of those awkward family gatherings where, due to unresolved tensions, nobody quite knows what to say. Jesus simply feeds his wobbly friends yet again. The text states, this was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. In other words, Peter's had two prior occasions to set things right, but he's managed to dodge the elephant in the relationship until now. Jesus addresses him by name, asking, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. I wonder if Peter has a giddy moment of thinking, is that it? But again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. 
At this point, maybe one of them pokes that charcoal fire. Then a third time, one for each of the denials that haunt Peter. Three opportunities at a charcoal fire for that three-time denier to engage God's grace. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Lord, you know everything, is what Peter says. What he doesn't say is everything, including the fact that on that awful night, the last time I saw you alive, on that night that I cannot escape, on that night that was the eve of your execution, you know that I denied even knowing you. As with Saul, Jesus has chosen Peter as an instrument of his ongoing work. But first, there is the grace, the forgiveness, the love that removes the crushing weight of failure, guilt, frailty. This text has factored in my faith ever since a conversation during my pastoral internship in South Africa. A parishioner, Lynette, was driving me out to her favorite tea room, perched high in an orchard on a mountainside, just impossibly picturesque. And as we drove, I said to her a question that had been in my head for a long, long time. I said, Lynette, why does this church talk so much about, well, Jesus? Yes, that is a peculiar question for a pastor in training to ask, but my home church, we tended to talk about God and God's priorities and God's creation and God's grace, but we were shy about talking about Jesus. I think we were skittish of the risk of personal salvation taking priority over getting busy being God's hands and feet at work in the world. Lynette offered me a simple yet profound reply, and I sincerely apologize that my South African accent isn't better. She said, Lee, when Jesus talks to Peter there at breakfast on the beach, he begins with, do you love me? Only after that does he say, feed my lambs or tend my sheep. Don't you hear it, Lee? First, we are to love Jesus. And then we can't help but look for ways to take part in caring for his world. Lynette and I weren't driving along a road to Damascus, but something like scales did fall from my eyes because I was given a new view of faith. When we respond to God's gracious activity in our lives by loving Jesus, that propels us to participate in God's ongoing mission. That's the full process. And for it to be all that it can be, and all that this hurting world needs for it to be, we need both steps. We are to love Jesus, and we are to do something with that love. Now some of you, like my home church, may be a little leery of all this talk about loving Jesus, and I get that. And if we stop at that step, then it becomes mostly about us. 
And that's not who we are. We are generally eager to get busy being God's hands and feet at work in this world. Well, what Lynette helped me see is that loving Jesus is the finest rationale, the strongest inspiration, the energy, the oxygen that undergirds whatever we do as people seeking to follow Christ. Whatever actions you take, whatever commitments you make, whatever gifts you give, whatever ways you open yourself to be an instrument that God can use in God's ongoing mission. The first question Jesus asks Peter is not, what are you going to do to fix the world? But rather, do you love me? To be clear, that but first love may not be first chronologically. What first draws us in, into the life of faith, into the membership in a church, into this sacramental meal, what first draws us here may be a desire to fix the world or a yearning for community or the power of ritual or appreciation of music or of learning or simply a sense of duty. But what sustains us, what keeps us going when our net is empty, that is the active, lived out, reciprocated love of God. Peter's call to serve the world, to care for God's flock, flourished because of his hard-won through struggle, loving response to God's grace. We too receive such grace at this table, in this community, and beyond. And we too are invited to love Jesus deeply enough to engage in feeding and tending and serving this world that God so loves. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast. I invite you to visit our website, covpresatl.org. That's C-O-V-P-R-E-S-A-T-L.org. There you'll find current worship information, links to our live Sunday morning streaming service, and our full archive of recorded services. You'll also find out more about us and how to get in touch. I wish you well in these strange times. God is with us. Grace and peace to you.